Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching through Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 through 30, and the sermon title is The Purpose of Christian Suffering. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Today, in our story, um, it's very familiar. It's the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've ever watched Veggie Tales growing up, I'm sure you're, you already have that in your mind. So try to put, try to make it a little bit more adult in your mind than that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an incredible story, a very well-known story, but there's much for us to learn here. Um, this will be a slightly shorter sermon just because of all that we have done this morning. And I do have a timer to keep me on track. So just so you know, <laughs> that's why this is up here. Um, but uh, Without further ado, let's get into the word. So we'll be focusing primarily on verses 19 to the end of the chapter. So the first thing we want to look at here is sort of an introduction to the main meat of the passage, which is 19 to 23, where we're seeing the rage of King Nebuchadnezzar for their refusal to bow down to him and to only worship their God. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Joel preached on idolatry from this uh, same passage earlier on in the chapter. And uh, it's it's worth bringing this up again as background for what's going on here. So fallen humanity, humanity after the fall in the Garden of Eden is prone to idolatry. And idolatry is worshiping or loving or caring about anything above God, making a good thing a God thing. Or a bad thing, a God thing. It's the air we breathe in our culture and in our world. And uh, so much so that John Calvin once said, the human heart is a factory of idols. It's a factory of idols. It's not that we're mere victims of a disease and we can't help but sin. That's, that's a part of it. But the main problem is actually that we're so twisted in heart that we love sin. We love to disobey God. We love to do our own will rather than God's will. And we love love sin so deeply we'll do anything we need to to prevent parting with it. Even sin, so there's sins that are widely recognized as such, like many forms of sexual immorality, murder, stealing, Those are things that most people will admit are wrong, though not all. But then there's even the more heinous and subtle sins of self-righteousness and pride. All are caused by our love for sin and our idolatry. Worshiping ourselves or something else over God. And here in chapter 3 of Daniel, we see this very thing in Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. We see that they go so they, they don't just demand respect and some some level of obedience because we are to obey those in power and authority over us until they cross a certain line. And that line is when they command us to do something that God forbids, or they forbid us from doing something that God commands. There's a reason why we say Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
It means that even the kings themselves have a king. And that message is very threatening to the kings of this world and to all people who are in rebellion against God. Um, Here in this passage, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated. He wants to just, just obliterate and incinerate these people. All because they refuse to worship him. They're not starting up an insurrection. They're just refusing to worship him. And this is what many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world have been, this is why they've been abused and killed many times. It's, they're just peacefully proclaiming and living out the gospel that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And the rulers of this world see that as a threat to their power. And individuals of this world see that as a threat to their own moral autonomy. They want to be God. They want to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. And that is a story as old as the Garden of Eden itself. With Satan tempting Eve saying, you shall be like God. Because of this threat to his lordship, King Nebuchadnezzar issues a command to ignite the furnace seven times hotter than normal. And it should be noted that it's not that there was, this was an actual measurement. Seven in the ancient world was a number to symbolize completion or perfection. So he's basically saying, get that furnace as hot as you possibly can. And it should also be noted what kind of furnace we're talking about. It's helped us get the picture in our mind. It's not just a, a furnace that you'd stick a... It's not like an oven where you'd stick like a pizza or something. It's, it's, it's actually terrifying. It's a, there's different designs, of course, but the one that was likely being used here was a pit in the palace um, where people were thrown into, where there would be flames that would just engulf others. There would be a, a high wall where people would stand above and look down, and there would be the shorter wall where people would actually throw the... Um, those who would be executed. They had the shorter wall so that they wouldn't die by the fall. They wanted the people to die by the flames so they wouldn't die just on impact. And this is why the men who are carrying these bound um, Jewish young men were killed in the fire because when they throw them in on that shorter wall, the flame just comes right back at them and they were, they were killed in that fire. We'll come back to that, of course. But uh, here's, here's the thing to, to, to take note of here in this section before we get into the real meat of this passage. And that would be that even when face-to-face with this pending execution, this terrifying way of dying, they remain steadfast and faithful to the true God. They were ready to go to their death in obedience to God. And this should remind us of Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of this bravery and faithfulness. He was faced with a far worse death than the furnace. Far worse death. He was beaten, whipped. Skin was ripped off his back. He was given a crown of thorns. And after mocking and beatings of various kinds, he was hung on a cross, a splintery cross, for hours until he died. 
And he, he endured that suffering. And the Bible tells us how. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy would that be? It'd be the joy of honoring God, the Father, and of redeeming his people. We are going to come back to that in our passage. So we're going to continue on to our next section here, verse 24. And this is where I really want us to pay attention. Verse 24 and following. So we're going to see God's presence in suffering. We're going to see God's presence in suffering here. So then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. This is verse 24. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So in this section, we're going to see God being present with his people in suffering. And I want to say this. If you miss um, a lot of what I'm going to say, just capture this one sentence here. Being a Christian is not about avoiding suffering in this world. It is about learning how to suffer well for the sake of Christ. It's not about avoiding suffering in the world. It's learning how to suffer well. The scriptures fully anticipate that Christians will suffer for our faith and suffer in general. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And affirming that is, is one thing, but actually experiencing that is a whole nother. Um, our, in our world, um, in, our, in our current context, um, there isn't a whole lot of persecution in our country that we are facing other than um, exile and mockery, though I'm sure that will change someday. But there's still other suffering that we go through nonetheless, all suffering. God is present in all suffering, which we will see. One thing that is unfortunate that we do sometimes is we think the spiritual thing is to pretend the suffering isn't that bad. Pretend the suffering isn't really there or we're fine. That's actually very unhelpful and not right at all. That's not what Christ did. That's not the example we have in the scriptures at all. Um, it actually it makes things worse. So how are we supposed to do this? We're supposed to suffer like Christ did. And as we talked about earlier in the verse I quoted, this is how he did it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So it's, it's interesting that he even says that he despised the shame. So he's not minimizing the horror of his death. He, hate, he hated that. He hated what happened. It was not enjoyable. But he endured it. He endured the suffering for the sake of the joy that was set before him, which was God, and the redemption of humanity. 
So because we have the spirit of Christ in us, we too can endure suffering like Jesus did. By seeing suffering as a doorway to joy. By seeing it as a doorway to joy. And I'm not just going to leave it there by saying joy in general. We need to talk about what that actually is because there are specifically laid out things in the scriptures that Jesus had his mind set on as he was enduring the cross. So let's talk about the immediate joys that we can experience if we suffer well in the world, and then we'll talk about the eternal joys that we can experience and will experience if we suffer as Christ. So there are the immediate joys of having a greater sense of God's presence as we go through trials. And I think many of us can attest to that as we've gone through horrible things in our life, whether it's sickness or death or abuse or a disability or even persecution or mockery. When that happens, it causes us to cling to God more. And it helps us to see who he is more and experience his presence in a way that when things are comfortable, it's very hard to. Another one is seeing how God uses our suffering to produce faith in others. And this one is incredible because what God does, remember, God is, and we're going to see this at the end, God is over all things. All suffering is part of God's plan. And that can be a hard teaching for some, but it's actually the most comforting thing when we truly understand what that means. God has taken into account all things. Nothing passes him by. Nothing happens by accident. There's nothing that God has to react to. It's all in his plan. And though we may not understand how that all works out in great detail, we're not supposed to. We're supposed to take that knowledge and use it to worship and trust him. But think about all of the, and I'm sure you can think of many stories of of Christians who have suffered, but they did it with the joy of God in their hearts and how that affected people. There's just, there's this one story on Facebook. It was getting shared around of this girl who had some um, very bad disease and she was basically on her deathbed. She knew she was going to die. Um, and, uh, she, and she did end up passing away a week or so ago. But the whole time she was just making tons of Facebook posts and videos of her praising God, even though she knew she was going to her death. And this is a young girl, early 20s. And the impact that her life has had already and her death has had already is incredible. And I'm sure you can think of many people in your life who suffered with the joy of God in their hearts, who suffered knowing that there was a joy set before him, before them, that would be eternal. And then there's the temporary joy of suffering producing our um, pr- producing sanctification in us. Sanctification is another way of saying being made holy, being made like Jesus. And uh, if you want to read extensively about this, go to the book of First Peter, where we are told over and over that as we suffer and face trials for the sake of Christ, what are, whether that's sickness or persecution or mockery, whatever it might be, when we suffer them as a Christian, not pretending the suffering isn't real, but holding on to the hope of God, we are changed to be like Christ. 
We're changed to be like Christ. It makes us more like him. And then, of course, there's the eternal joys, which these are the ones that we think of most often, and I hope so. We should think of these because these are the unshakable ones, whereas those other joys may have some fluctuation in how they play out and the timing of them. We know that these eternal joys are steadfast and sure, and we can wait expectantly for these. So there's the joy of should we die and when we die, we will be with God forever if we are his children. We will be with him, and the suffering and the agony of this world will come to an end when we are with him. But it doesn't just stop there. There's more to God's plan than just us going to be with him when we die, though that is certainly incredible. When Jesus returns to this earth someday, we will be raised from the dead bodily. And all creation will be raised from the dead and its curse will be lifted. And the only thing that will be left behind are those in rebellion to God. But all creation and all his people will be resurrected and restored. And that means a sin and a sin-free, a death-free world called the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, where we will be with all of God's people throughout all of history. We will be with all of his people enjoying a death-free, sin-free world with deep friendship, incredible food, landscape, celebration, and unimaginable things. All the things that God created originally that were good just amplified and made perfect through Christ. And finally, and most importantly, we will be with our God and Savior Jesus, worshiping him for all eternity with his people. That is the hope that we have. And that is the hope of the early Christians who went through the most intense persecution, being just children who were just baptized, being thrown to lions in the Colosseum. Christians being put on poles and ignited as torches in Rome. They had the joy set before him, before them that, that Jesus had. That eternal joy. And if we do this, there are some things that will happen. And verse 25 gives us a, a hint or a template for some of those things. Verse 25 says, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So notice, we'll walk through these briefly, unbound. So he saw these men unbound. What, what were they bound with? They were bound with these cords. And they had all their clothes on them, still. And then they were bound with cords, likely together, thrown into the fire. And what does the fire do? The fire burns off the cords, but doesn't burn off their clothes. We know that because later on in the passage it says that the fire had no power over them. All their clothes were still there. They didn't even smell like fire. But the cords were burned off. So what the world put on them, the fire took off them. And to us, that is, should remind us of when we go through suffering and trials as Christians, whether, again, whatever that might be, of course, in this context, it's particularly persecution, whatever that might be, our, our, our worldliness, our laziness, the drunkenness of mind that we so often have with our love for distractions and entertainment, those things are burned away 
when we are faced with the reality of suffering and we see things clearly. We see God for who he is and we see the world for what it really is when we go through suffering well as Christians. It forces us to see God for who he is. And then it says they were walking in the midst of the fire. And that should remind us that as Christians, as we go through suffering, we are not debilitated. We're actually given strength. Even though we might physically have a condition where we are unable to do certain things. As we go through suffering as a Christian, we are actually enabled more than ever to obey God. And, to, to, and for his will to be done on earth. Even if we can't imagine how we're actively doing that. Because what happens is when we go through trial for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God, for the joy of being with him, for giving him glory, when we do that, it, it changes us and it changes our perspective and we're no longer bound in slaves to the things this world is bound to. We are free, even though we might be physically bound and debilitated. Spiritually, we are freer than ever to see the realities of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And lastly, just look at the end of verse 25. It says, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is, um, he's a pagan, so he believes in many gods. So he's here, he's just, this, his category of thinking, he looks like a son of the gods. Whether this is God with them in the fire or just an angel, the point is it is picturing either way the presence of God with his people in suffering. And when we go through the fire, when we go through suffering as Christians, the world doesn't just see us, they see God. The world sees God in the midst of our suffering. It validates the message that we preach in the lives that we live. When we are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and suffer with joy, when we do that, their eyes are open. And God, and it's not just them. God is using it. God uses means, and God is using the means of us suffering to open the eyes of those who see and look on to us suffering. And they see God in us. They see God with us. And their faith is strengthened. Their faith, if, if they are believers, and if they are not believers, then they're convicted, possibly, or God will use that to bring about faith in them. But these are the results of suffering well as Christians. Like God does these things in, in the world. And we just read a couple weeks ago when we, when we taught on the vision of the statue that God's kingdom is here and it is growing. It is growing. And that there are variations in how we understand that to be happening. We know it is happening. And we know God is doing this work. And the primary way he has done that through history is by his people suffering, which is, shouldn't surprise us because that is exactly how God saved the world, through God suffering on the cross. So it shouldn't surprise us that his kingdom will grow primarily through our suffering. And we're to take joy in that because of the, again, the eternal perspective, the big picture that God is planning. 
So lastly, just a couple more minutes here. We're going to talk about the last part of this, which is God's victory through suffering. So I mentioned before that God has all things planned, all things in the palm of his hand. This world, this universe, all of history is his story that he has written from all eternity. And he is the author. We shouldn't argue about how that works because it's not our place to know. It's our place to worship him and believe it. But what it should do is give us rock-solid confidence in who God is and whatever is happening in the world. If we are his children, we know that it is going to work out for our eternal good and for his glory. It's so cool that we see God triumph here. So the command was initially that Nebuchadnezzar's statue would have to be worshipped. And then look at the decree that Nebuchadnezzar gives. Any people and nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, obviously, I don't think we would want that to be the, the decree of the land where people who, don't worship, who, who say anything about God would be, um, would be killed. Um, that's, again, this is not God giving this command. This is Nebuchadnezzar, right? But the point is the radical change there, not necessarily of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, because we will see later that it was not changed. But what that did to the world, it changed the world, it changed their society because of their faithfulness through suffering, their, their willingness to obey God to the point of death even death in a furnace. And the whole empire is now told of the Most High God's mighty deeds, of what he has done. So the thought I want us to get from this section as we come to a conclusion here is that the world cannot stop Christ's kingdom. The world cannot stop God from working and from moving and from the gospel from going Fourth, their strategy can only be one of two things, to persecute us or to leave us alone. And either way, the kingdom of God will prevail over the world. God, the gospel will go to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea. In times of peace, we will be rooted in every part of society, like we've seen in our own country's history many times. We'll raise children, we'll work hard, we'll start schools, we'll write books, We'll proclaim the good news in the public square. We'll make our societies flourish by showing them the way God intended humanity to be. All while proclaiming the gospel. That's if they leave us alone. And if they persecute us, then God's glory will be seen in our suffering. Which again is the normal way of his kingdom growing. Just like it was in the three Jewish men in the furnace. And these things we teach about Jesus will be validated by our willingness to die for him. What we teach about God will be validated by our willingness to die for him. And the church will be purified of the Judases who were just there for selfish gain and not for God himself. Then through that very persecution, Christianity, our message, Christians, will spread into places it has never touched before. So this might be contrary to some of the way we think, but some of the way we think about this, but Satan is fighting a losing battle. He's fighting a losing battle. 
this world's darkness will lose to the light of Christ in his church, in the gospel. It has been pronounced ages ago. It's just in that very passage we read a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 2. Where God's kingdom will grow larger than all of the kingdoms of the world. So in conclusion, just a few things to remember. Remember why the reason, the reason why you are hated in the world if you're a Christian, why you will suffer persecutions from many people. It's because they are offended at the lordship of Jesus. They're offended that Jesus is king and that we're proclaiming him to be king. Because without God, without God changing our hearts, we love sin more than God. And we want to be our own gods. Remember God's presence in suffering. Don't minimize suffering. Don't minimize the suffering of other people. Instead, see through the suffering and see it as an opportunity to have greater joy in God. Know that he can deliver you. He will deliver you. And even if he doesn't, his glory will be made known. And ultimately, all of his people will be saved in the end from all suffering when we are raised from the dead. And remember, lastly, God's victory through suffering. When we suffer as Christians, the gospel message is validated. It is visible to the whole world, and it changes people by the power of God's Spirit. So, Christian, know that the suffering you're going through, or will soon be going through, was planned by God for your good, ultimately, and for his glory. And this is the way the gospel will prevail over the world, and that many, many, many people will come to Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, you are incredible. Your word is powerful. You are mighty. Your, your works to save are mighty. We are nothing you are everything, and you have made us a kingdom of priests. You have made us your children. So, God, I ask that as we go through this world and have suffering, whether that's persecution, mockery, illness, sickness, death, disabilities, whatever they are, help us to see them as opportunities to find greater joy in you and to proclaim your good news through our lives and through the hope that we have. And God, I ask that for those of us who are not suffering, that we would weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that we would use our time that we have to further your kingdom by investing in things that matter, by working hard, by loving our families, by living as Christ in this world, as we are his body here. And I pray that you would do these things for the sake of your son, Jesus, who is our Lord. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church or to find our gathering times and location, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.